Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Tiffany Muller, president of End Citizens United and Let America Vote, as well as the Action Fund that supports them both. Since joining End Citizens United, Tiffany has grown the organization from a startup to a national force. Today, it has more than 4 million members, more than 1 million grassroots donors, and it has helped elect more than 600 candidates, all of whom made protecting the voice and vote of every American a national priority. Tiffany has been described as a force of nature. One publication called her, quote, a high-quality leader who grasps the responsibility to a larger cause. Her leadership has been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine, among others, who named her one of the most influential people in Washington. Tiffany began her career in government and politics when she became the first openly gay public official in Kansas as a member of the Topeka City Council in 2004. There, she led successful efforts to expand anti-discrimination protections, and since that time, she has worked on campaigns for Kansas Governor Kathleen Sebelius, Kansas Democratic Party, Kansas Equality Coalition, the DSCC. She has served as a political consultant and worked on races all over the country. And she has served as chief of staff to two members of the U.S. House of Representatives. I really enjoyed talking with Tiffany, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. She and I recorded this episode on Friday, May 12th. Tiffany Muller, welcome to Staffer. Thanks so much for having me. It is my pleasure. I'm really excited to have you today. Um, as you may know, we like to start these episodes by learning a bit about people's backgrounds and where they came from. So if you don't mind me starting there, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what family life was like. I think that's a great place to start. You know, most people in politics uh, know me as being from Kansas, uh, but actually I grew up in this little small town called Amaret, Missouri which had a, a grand total of 238 people in it. Wow. And I went to one of those consolidated rural high schools that from K through 12 had a total of like 300 people in it. Wow. Um, and it was, uh, my dad was a mechanic at the local power plant. And my mom and dad split up when I was really young. And um, I grew up with my dad and my brother. And it was the type of place where um, it, you work really hard and you work really long hours and things were generally pretty tough. Um, but it was also a place where neighbors helped neighbors and where whenever there was a tragedy in the community, everyone pitched in together and you learned some of your best lessons. But it was also, you know, uh, the 90s and very rural and pretty conservative area. And when I was in high school, I realized I was gay and it wasn't really a great place for me to stay long term. And so um, I actually graduated high school a year early and became first in my family to go to college. Um, and it was college that led me to Kansas and um, so when I talk about getting my start in politics, I always talk about Kansas, but uh, really where I grew up was a very rural, Missouri, hardworking, blue-collar area. Yeah. And so when you came to politics, was that in Kansas or were you it, interested in politics beforehand? 
It was. It was. I actually, um, nobody in my family was ever interested in politics. I did not grow up in a political family or in a, a political community. And I had never been interested myself. Um, I think I felt at the time really similar to what I hear a lot of voters tell us even now, which is um, that's all for someone else. Um, mm. They're not working for me. Right. Um, and I think there was generally a sense where I grew up of our community being pretty left behind and pretty forgotten. Um, and particularly as small family farmers had a tougher and tougher time, um, there just was not any economic opportunity there at all. So I actually came to politics. I was in college in Topeka, Kansas, going to Washburn University. Go Ichabods. Uh, I know everyone was expecting Rock Chalk Jayhawk, and look, I am here for the Hawks, but uh, go Ichabods. Um, and was I lived in Topeka, Kansas, and some of your listeners might know that as the home of Westboro Baptist Church. And Fred Phelps oh. and his merry band of picketers, wow. who at Did the time, every single day were out on the streets with their God hates fag signs, right? Ugh. And I had been doing domestic violence, sexual assault work, um, and really feeling it, kind of coming up in that feminist movement and that feminist grounding of how do we change systems to help individuals? Um but we started pushing in Topeka, Kansas, for a local anti-discrimination ordinance that would protect LGBTQ folks from being fired from their jobs or kicked out of their house, um, denied public accommodations. And we ended up one vote short on the city council, four to five. Mm. And I remember it was the first time I had ever really helped organize uh, hundreds of people to show up to the city council. We had organized um, these rallies and these marches, and it was the first time I had done anything like that. And so many folks were just heartbroken that we had lost by one vote. Yeah. And it was. It was gutting. Yeah. But I was also really optimistic um, because to me it was we only needed to flip one vote, right? Uh, yeah. Little did I know <laughs> how hard that is. <laughs> But to me, it meant we needed to, you know, get either one of them to change their mind or one of them uh, to be replaced with somebody else. And city council elections were coming up. So we so through that, I started running a local gay rights organization and um, we did the hard work of politics, the work that we all do every day. Right. Yeah. It was knocking on doors. It was doing the phone calls. We basically did deep canvassing on tens of thousands of Topekan stores and talked to them about being gay <laughs> and yeah. got them to sign letters to support the local anti-discrimination efforts. So this organizing took years. It, you know, the first effort was in 2002. By the time we rolled around for the second vote, it was 2004. But through that organizing, I actually ended up on the city council. So I ended up being the fifth vote. Incredible. And I got to tell you, everyone said, you know, look, don't bring it back up. Wait a little bit longer. It's going to be the death of your political career. And I was like, I didn't get in this to have a career. I got in this to make a change. We have the votes. We're going now. Yeah. This is, And so this is now 2004. And to put that in some historical context to remind people, 
That was also George Bush's reelect when they put gay uh, anti-gay marriage amendments on 30 states across the country to juice up Republican turnout. Yeah. And Kansas was one of the few states that because of our organizing, we were actually able to beat that back. Wow. Um, and then at the same time, passed this local anti-discrimination ordinance in Topeka. Um, but I, w- I want all your listeners to know the naysayers were not wrong. I did get my ass kicked in the general uh, re-election, <laughs> and I am still proud of it to this day. <laughs> Amen. Uh, right. Um, so let me, as I understand it, I believe you are the first public official in the state of Kansas who was openly gay. That is true. So... Obviously, that must have been a a, a really wonderful um, threshold, right? To to cross and to be the person who crosses it first. But it also must come with a lot of pressure. How did you how did you balance that? It was hard, um, and you balance it through community and through just trying to do good work every single day. But um, again, this was kind of during the heart of some um, big anti-gay efforts and attacks across our country. Um, the Phelps at the time were very empowered. So and my district actually covered <laughs> their church. So they wow. were actually my constituents. Oh my um, and they would regularly picket uh, both me and the city council, but would regularly picket um, the work that we were doing. Um, and so, yeah, I think I actually still hold the record for having the most signs about me at any one time. I had seven uh, in case anyone wanted to keep count. Um, it was really tough. It definitely took a toll. It took a toll on um, on me personally. It took a toll on the community as a whole. But we also were able to make huge change because it matters when people know you individually and it matters when you are at the table and it matters when you're part of the conversation. And I look at Kansas now and I am always so proud of where they're at and the work that they're doing. And the fact, if I had any small part in helping lay a path for amazing leaders like Sharice Davids, like I feel so proud of that. Well, absolutely you do. And something that you talked about was going out into the community, knocking on doors, talking to people. I mean, that was extremely hard in any community that you lived in in the United States of America in the early 1990s uh, or early 2000s. Like it was it was different. Yeah. Um, But particularly that community with Westboro Baptist Church, I can only imagine how intense of an experience that was. And looking at the arc, I mean, all the way to Obergefell, where, right, the Supreme Court holds uh, gay marriage to be valid and constitutionally protected. Um, A a large part of, you know, I think political professionals understanding, and this is, I'd love to know your perspective, is that a turning point was the gay community putting themselves on the line, really, to go talk to people. And it changed hearts and minds because people came to realize, oh, there are neighbors, there are family members, and it's just wrong to treat this group of people as a second class. And that's not to say that there's, you know, that community has been cured of, of, you know, those types of attacks. Um, But that progress 
really it did hinge on a lot of work that you did and and I do think you can take credit for uh, some of the things that you'd like to take credit for. Well, just like the work that I was able to do stood on the shoulders of others who had come before yes, me and who had done the work before. That is the way movements are built and that is what we do, right? I came out, um, I, in the gay community, I always like to say, or at least in the lesbian community, there is B.E. and after E. Before Ellen and after Ellen, right? Because uh, when Ellen DeGeneres yeah. came out, it was kind of a demarcation line in our culture and in our understanding of being gay. And um, I actually came out two years before Ellen came out. And mm. if y'all uh, and everyone will remember, you know, she came out and then was promptly canceled, right? Um, and, you know, this was right around the same time that Matthew Shepard was killed. Um, it was a very different time in our country's history where the very act of coming out was a very brave and courageous and also political step. Right. And, um, it is part of what motivated national coming out day. It's part of why we as a community always encouraged if you are safe to be able to come out because, we knew that knowing people who are gay changed hearts and minds. And so you're absolutely right. There was when we did, when we went door to door and we talked to people in Topeka about being gay and was it okay to fire someone just because they were gay? We got one of three responses. One was, get the hell off my lawn, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there were yeah. plenty of those, plenty of those. The second was, oh my God, we're with you all the way. And I literally had one woman give me some lemon bars she had baked, which were incredible. I still remember that. Um, and the third and most common was the sense of shared values, that we are supposed to treat each other a certain way, with fairness, with kindness, with respect. If we disagree, we can do so respectfully. And there was a real sense of that in Kansas and in Topeka, and that value is what we were able to draw on for that win. Um, and I still think that despite how polarized our politics have gotten, despite, I think, sometimes the hateful rhetoric that we see, and even the new um, surge of attacks against the LGBTQ community, that those values are still there and we can still talk to people in that way. Um, and I got to say that that moment in time and I love that we're spending some extra time on it because it really was pivotal in my life because what it taught me is that when people join together and do the hard work that you know we all call politics that we really can create the change and I tend to think that's why most of us do this work it's not for the hours of knocking on doors or hours of phone banking it's that we believe that when we are part of something together that is fighting for something bigger than ourselves that we can really create change. Yes. Oh, so well put. Um, you know, um, one of the other things I find interesting about that experience is because you ended up as a council member, you have this weird upside down career where most people who are who end up public officials and staffers in their career are staffers first then they you know become public officials you did the opposite you know very early in your career you became a public official and now have also afterwards had this very long and successful career as a staffer um what learnings did you take from that of being on the 
you know, other side of the of the principal staffer divide. Yeah, uh, it's so interesting. I never had, you know, I never had any desire to be a public official. To me, it was um, I was in a role in a movement and had the opportunity to help create change. So that was the role I needed to be in. Um, and it was so intense that I really wanted to help other people create that change afterward. Um, but I think it has always given me great empathy for the principles that I have worked with throughout my career to understand that it is it is their name on the ballot. It is they are the ones who are um, facing the Q&A. Um, they're the ones who got stopped in. You know, I used to get calls at 6 a.m. when I was on the city council from someone who needed something fixed on their street. And so I had great empathy and understanding that the constituent outreach sometimes went directly to them. Um, and that when you are the name and the face, that there is um, a lot of pressure on you day in and day out. And so I always viewed my role as a staffer. Um, one of the things I viewed as my role of a staffer was to alleviate as much of that pressure as I could and to help make sure that they were uh, obviously well-prepared um, but also to be empathetic to those constraints and concerns and um, to try to help make sure that we carved out time for them. Yeah. You know, that constituent call just reminds me, a part of being a staffer <clears throat> that doesn't get as much attention is, I'll just call it follow-up, right? <laughs> a member has, right, a member or a candidate has a conversation and something is brought to them and of course, they turn to a member of the staff to help remedy that, just kind of move it forward. And I would think it's very personal, you know, when they're the ones saying, yes, I will do something. Yes, we will follow up. And then they have to hand it to staff to follow up. And that happens 100 times a day. There's a lot of stress that comes with, wait, did somebody forget number 72? You know, it, it, is, it, is it being done? And staff work really is sometimes reassurance and just you know, letting the principal know we're doing it. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, when I was with Patrick Murphy on the Hill, uh, he used to have this shorthand he would write on the back of every business card that um, of everyone he met. And so he would hand me a stack of business cards and I had to know what his shorthand meant. And his handwriting was really awful, too, by the way. Right. But we had developed a code where it was and I knew that you know, what follow-up was needed or who we needed to connect them with. Um, and he very much trusted that I would take care of it. And I took that trust seriously. But also he would then come back and be like, how is that follow-up going? It was just always in his head because yeah. those personal connections really mattered um, and really mattered to him. And I think that uh, the best members of Congress, the best public officials do take that responsibility seriously because they understand that um, they're, they have been given a big responsibility and that people are reaching out because they need real help. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, well, so as I, as I um, mentioned in the introduction, you have had an incredible career in campaigns in politics. Uh, before we, we talk about your current role at End Citizens United, you worked at uh, and for 
the Kathleen Sebelius campaign, uh, the Kansas Democratic Party, the polling firm Hamilton Campaigns, and you had your own political consulting firm. Two organizations committed to ending discrimination based on sexual orientation and sexual identity, the Kansas Equality Coalition, which is today known as Equality Kansas, and the Victory Fund Institute, which trains people in campaigns. You also served as the deputy political director at the DSCC in 2016, and you served as chief of staff to two members of Congress. Um, this is a this is a serious question, and and it again it touches on something you said. Like you got done with the Kansas um, or the Topeka City Council experience, and we're probably exhausted. That's a long list of exhausting jobs that I just ticked off. Was there ever a point where you got, you know, finished with one of those jobs or campaigns and it didn't end the way you hoped and you thought to yourself, maybe I should just go do something else? Always. Uh, Don't any of us who have uh, (laughs) been in this work, I mean, you just went through my resume. I think folks will understand I've been in it for a while. (laughs) Uh, When we have a bad elections night or election cycle or... um, you know, a vote doesn't go the way we want, et cetera. I think it can also often feel like, oh man, this work is so hard. It's so grinding. It requires so much sacrifice. Do I still have it? Do I still have the energy to get up and give it what it requires? So what do you do in those moments? Like how do you, you know, you've obviously been there and kept going at such a high level. Uh, You know, I think that there have been a couple of things that have really helped. Uh, one, I, you know, I definitely believe people should take time and should uh, take vacations. And that is absolutely true. Um, but the one that tends to get me the most remotivated and fired up is that I just refuse to hand our country over to the people on the other side without a fight. Like, I just I'm too stubborn to do it. Um, And it is actually that side of me that tends to get me back up and ready to go for another cycle. Is that God? Oh, I was getting ready to cuss on your your podcast there. (laughs) Well, that's okay. That's okay. But But really, like, damn it. I am not going to let them hurt people and take our country backward um, without we might not win all these fights, but we sure as hell are going to make them fight. Yeah. Um, and it turns out we we win some that we didn't expect. And I hold on to those and they give me so much energy and hope as well. I love when the voters restore my faith. Right. Mm, yeah. um, 2022 is a good example. I, I, like most people, thought the night was not going to go as well as it did. I loved that the voters proved us wrong. Yeah. Um, that they said that this extremist view of America, these threats to our democracy, taking away our abortion rights, that they weren't just going to stand by and let it happen either. That they turned out in record numbers and we had a historic midterm. Um, that that makes me want to get up and meet their efforts with my own. Yeah. So you today are engaged in a generational fight. I mean, a fight that is core to our democracy. Um, about halfway through the the, the list that I um, ran through in 2010, the Supreme Court issued a decision that changed the law dramatically and has shaped the political landscape ever since. And that decision 
was Citizens United versus the Federal Elections Commission. And it's what gives your group and Citizens United its name. Can you tell our listeners what that decision was and what it means today? Sure. Uh, I think most people know it as the decision that laid the path for super PACs, right? But really what it did is it took two really bad ideas and it merged them together. And then it basically said um, corporations are people and money yep. equals speech. And therefore, uh, corporations can spend any amount of money that they want to influence elections. Um, and then the natural extension of that has been basically unlimited and mostly undisclosed money really pouring into our elections. And it is hard to even begin to paint the picture of how much it's changed in uh, a, such a short period of time. Um, but it used to be, and many of all, most of us who worked on races prior to Citizens United remember when what mattered the most was what the candidates themselves could say about themselves and each other, right? Yep. And even in the most competitive of seats, about 75% of the spending and the communication in those campaigns was controlled by the candidates. Um, and now that's just simply not true, right? We have most of the races, it is less than 25% of the spending is actually by the candidates. Wow. More than 75% of it is from outside sources. Um, and how the people feel, and we talk to them a lot, is they just feel drowned out, shut out, right? They don't really know how to always make sense of uh, the competing claims that are on TV, but basically they just think the whole system and the whole process works for somebody else. And they're they're pretty right. We've also seen stagnation and gridlock and dysfunction on policy after policy after policy that 80% of Americans want. If you look yeah. at gun safety, if you look at climate change, there are so many um, lowering prescription drug prices like, it's so easy to connect the dysfunction and the gridlock around those policy priorities back to the money because the elected officials tend to be more scared of the money that's going to be spent against them than they are right now about uh, the wrath of the voter. And um, so that is where we're at. And that's what, I, what we fight for. Um, you know, we are in Citizens United and Let America Vote. And our mission is to get big money out of politics and help protect and expand the freedom to vote. Um, and those are really big goals. Um, and to your point, really generational fights. But to me, this is really about who gets to have power in our democracy, who gets yeah. to have a say. It tends to be the generational push and pull and a fight that has gone on in our country since our country's founding. Yep. Um, and to me, it is not just a means to an end. It is a means to many ends. It is that if we mm. are successful in this fight, we level the playing field for other fights. Yeah. Right. Um, it, so that is, uh, that is what we are working on and what we fight it for. Well, and both, both parts of the organization and Citizens United and Let America Vote really are, um, just, uh, pillars on which the 
the the notion of our democracy rest, right? That we can have debates, to your point, that are the candidates debating ideas, and two, everyone gets an equal vote on which vision for the country or the district or the state that they want. And those two fundamental things are really under attack today on a lot of fronts. So what is the, you know, what is the work of End Citizens United and Let America Vote? Like, what do you do to bring about the changes we seek? Yeah. Um, so we are actually the electoral arm of the democracy movement. Um, so our job, first and foremost, is to help make sure that we are electing people who will get into office and then vote for the changes that we really need to protect our democracy. So um, it's wonderful, but we think it really matters to make sure that we have folks who are running campaigns, leaning into democracy messaging, winning the tough races, and we are there with them every step of the way to make sure that happens. Um, And then kind of the other side of our work is then pushing for those legislative changes to be voted on and to pass. And in order to do that, you have to build up enough power and momentum um, behind the issues. You have to make, you know, what tends to be voted on here in D.C. is whatever is getting the most attention at any particular moment. And so our job is to make sure that we keep urgency on these issues, that yeah. um, that the attacks that you talked about that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing more voter suppression attacks than we have since Jim Crow era. We are seeing more money pour into these races than we have ever seen. We're seeing a network of connected right-wing dark money that has been funding everything from um, the effort to overturn Roe to the January 6th insurrection, right? It is all connected. And it is because right now we have a party who believes that the only way they can hold on to power is to tear down the foundations of our democracy, Um, And so we have to go out and we have to fight and we have to win and we have to win the races to make sure we have the right people in office. Um, And then we have to keep the pressure up on these issues so that we can actually then pass the real fundamental legislative changes we need to. Yep. Well, you made tremendous progress on a legislative proposal in the last Congress. It passed the House. It nearly passed the Senate. Can you talk a bit about what that proposal was? And, it, you know, unfortunately, it didn't make it all the way to the president's desk for signature. How you keep people motivated, you know, when an effort doesn't quite get over the line. We, yeah, we really, I think uh, for most people's point of view, we really got that uh, all the way down to the one yard line. Yes. Um, so much further than was expected. Totally. And it's because um, the American people understand the threat to our democracy We all are seeing it. We all understand that we have to have real change to fight back. Um, So uh, the the bill, the For the People Act or the Freedom to Vote Act, as it uh, later was known, did a few really simple things. One, it set national standards around access to the ballot box. So it uh, said you don't need to have an excuse to vote by mail. Uh, we're going to ensure that there is same-day voter registration, that there is uh, 14 days of early voting in every state, that we have automatic voter registration, that we are going to expand uh, access to the ballot box rather than roll it back. Um, because I think we can all agree that an American value should be 
that we should want everyone to vote. Everyone yes. who's eligible to vote, we should yes. want them to vote and we should yes. be helping them do that. Number two, um, while it could not overturn Citizens United, what it could do is make sure that the money being spent in these elections was transparent and disclosed so that Leonard Leo on the right wing side couldn't just put $1.6 billion into the next round of elections without us knowing who was behind that and where it was coming from. Um, and too often that's what we've seen. And um, so it made sure that there was disclosure and transparency and that there could be accountability and we could actually root out some of the corruption. Number three, it set uh, fair criteria for redistricting. So that, you know, we have seen the Republicans really master the art of gerrymandering. Um, Texas alone uh, shows us what what they can do and how they are not only um, redistricting on a partisan basis, but also to block out black and brown voters from having power. That's right. Um, so this would have set up criteria for fair redistricting in every state. And then as we saw what happened in 2020, um, there was also a piece added to make sure that partisan election officials couldn't overturn um, election results, that you had to count and certify and uphold the will of the voters. I mean, really seems like such a basic tenant, um, but we needed to make sure that that was uh, in the bill as well and that those protections were in because we saw what almost happened in 2020. That's right. Um, look, the vote voters across the country, even Republican voters, they are for these proposals. Yes. Right? Totally for it. It is the the only place that this is a partisan issue is in the halls of Congress. And it's because right now one party can't win elections on a fair and level playing field. And um, so that is really what we're trying to do. We're just trying to level the playing field. Yeah. You know, something I, I recall from the Citizens United decision and this, this you know, when I was in law school and so it was a while back, um, I seem to remember they have the most naive and narrow definition of corruption huh. that you could possibly imagine. It is preposterous to reach the conclusion that this amount of money <laughs> that is unattributed to individuals does not have a corrosive effect on the, our democracy. I mean, you have to willingly put blinders on yourself. And today we're watching a crisis unfold with the Supreme Court and the interplay of money with Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny Thomas. It's infuriating. So so I guess my question is how, you know, how much are you driven by optimism that, you know, what you know, what you want to accomplish is accomplishable? And how much is just frustration and uh, right with a system that has intentionally been broken? Uh, a good dose of both, for sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, the the Supreme Court definition of corruption, it feels like now, uh, in retrospect, uh, was just designed to make sure that uh we couldn't all just call out the corruption on the Supreme Court for what it is, right? That they twisted themselves in knots to try to so narrowly define um, what a quid pro quo is that somehow we would miss the fact that Clarence Thomas 
is getting his kids' tuition paid for, his mama's house paid for, and uh, trips that all of us would die to go on um, paid for, while also mingling, mixing and mingling with all these folks who had business in front of the court. Um, yes. And then they're, they wonder why the court has a crisis of confidence from the American people right now. The American people get it, right? They get that um, donors have special access. They get that special interests often set the policy agenda. They get that uh, uh, too often it is just those who have the biggest check who get to have the biggest say. And they're mad about it. And I'm mad about it. And we should all be mad about it, right? Because it means that the people where I grew up and uh, who worked really hard and were trying and already felt left behind are just further left behind now. Yep. And that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, yep. So there's both a good deal of frustration um, and I actually have real optimism. I think that the American people have been telling us for a long time that they want things to change, right? In 2006, we won, yeah, I'm dating myself, we won that, that set of elections, not just on the Iraq war, but also because of the corruption scandals that we had seen. And, um, and we saw some immediate ethics reforms uh, after the Democrats took back the House. In 2008, you know, we all talked about hope and change. It wasn't just hope and change for the country. It was specifically about changing a governmental system that wasn't working for the American people. It was specifically yeah. about changing a broken system. Um, you know, in 2016, I hate to say it, but uh, Trump, uh, you know, talked about draining the swamp and taking a baseball bat to, um, again, a system that wasn't working for the people. And he tapped into the worst side of that, but he tapped into it. Um, and then we saw the backlash of that in 2018. And... Um, so I think the American people have been trying to tell us, we are fed up. We are ready yeah. for change. And that gives me great optimism. Yeah. Because look, we came to the one yard line with our efforts last time. We were a mansion in a cinema short on filibuster reform. But today we have 49 votes for filibuster. We're one closer. We need one more. We right. have to, and when I lay out the path, you might laugh, but we have to flip the House. We have to hold the Senate. We need one more vote for filibuster reform. And we have to hold the White House. But none of that feels impossible to me. Yeah, it let's actually, do it. It actually feels like, yeah, we got some work to do. But there's right. a real path to all three of those things. And um, so I actually am quite optimistic. And uh, movements aren't won and lost on one big vote. They build on themselves, and there are watershed moments where things are passed, but the way that it, they are successful is that you don't give up after a setback. Um, and the people who need us to be in this fight, who need us to fight for them and make sure that they are having a voice, um, they can't afford for us to give up. Yeah. So you have you've built N Citizens United into one of the most effective and influential players on the national political landscape. And you've also worked with a lot of staffers throughout your career. So as you as the leader of, a, of an organization in politics, as you 
bring staff on? What is it you look for um, in the people that you want on your team? Uh, that's such a great question. Um, I want people who have a mix of the optimism we were just talking about and the desire to the desire to help produce real change mixed with a competitive spirit and um it the the just you we've all met these people i want the people who are ready to run into a wall right that yeah. they are just ready to go they are excited to be in the fight um and that they're going to come with creative ideas and hard work but they're not gonna forget why we're doing this that they're gonna um keep kind of centered the fact that we are trying to produce this really big change and it's not going to happen all at once um you know i i always think back at i'm always trying to grow as a leader i hope we all are um, I definitely haven't always gotten it right and um, hopefully I'm better today than I ever have been at this job and hope I'm better tomorrow than I have been. But um, Joyce Alagrucci was Kathleen Sebelius's chief of staff and campaign manager. And so when I was the research director for uh, Governor Sebelius in um, 2006 during the reelect, Joyce was the boss. And she yeah. had this ability to engender loyalty among her team that I have never seen and that I have to tell you last to this day. Any of us who worked for her, she called us up today, said, I need you here tomorrow. We'd all be booking that ticket. Wow. And it was a mix of trust and care and compassion um, with her own work ethic that set the pace for the team, um, along with um, entrusting that you were part of the team and she was going to let you in on some of the the, the secrets. And, yeah. um, you know, she knew how to play all those pieces just right. But I think the biggest piece was we knew she had our backs, and so we were going to make sure to have hers. And... So I tried to hold the lessons from Joyce pretty close in, uh, in every job, but particularly this one. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, that one of my favorite questions to ask people is, um, if I could raise the money and get the permitting for a Hall of Fame to staffers sure. and put it on the National Mall, um, who would you nominate for wow. the Staffer Hall of Fame? I probably would, would have to say Joyce. Uh -huh, I'd have yeah. to say Joyce. But I really have had the privilege to work with just incredible incredible people throughout my career. Um, uh, people who, uh, when I was younger in my career, opened many doors and helped mentor and guide me. Um, uh, people who, as I have gone through my career, have been my peers, and it has been such a joy to watch them grow. Um, and some incredible, what I always am so excited about is there are some incredible young staffers coming up behind us too, right? Yeah. And we are in good hands. Um, but I'd probably put Joyce in. And then, you know, just for the fun of it, I'll throw in uh, Jen Cox, Mark Kelly's chief of staff. Yeah. I think Jen is an incredible, just incredible epitome of a great staffer and a great strategist in this work. Oh, great nomination. Um Okay, a couple more questions for you. Um, 
one of my other recurring segments is called In the Vault. Can Ooh. you tell us about a time when you royally screwed up <laughs> and what happened and how you recovered from it? Oh, that's so hard. I mean, also, like this week? Because aren't we always? <laughs> right. <laughs> just look at my schedule from yesterday. Okay. I was an oppo researcher for five years. Do you know the sheer oh. amount of stuff I missed? Oh, so <laughs> stressful. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was on a governor's race uh, back in the day and doing uh, research and had missed, I um, had missed a, as researchers do once in a while, I had missed something uh, for a debate. And we were in the middle of prep and it was actually the candidate himself who noticed it, right? Because he had one of those vault-like memories of, well, I'm pretty sure back in this day we passed this. And, um, you know, it turned out he was absolutely right. Um, and I had set up this entire uh, section of debate prep um, without knowing that, right? Mm. I. It doesn't sound like a big screw up, but it was a good reminder of how you fix it, right? Which is that I stayed up late. I did all the research. I rewrote the section. Um, we went over it the next day. Um, and I earned his trust by just being able to do the work and fix the mistake and keep going. And I always think that that is... One of the questions I ask when I'm hiring is exactly that question. Tell me about a mistake you made and what you did about it. Because what I want to, I don't care what they say, right? What I want to know is, do they take responsibility for themselves? And are they willing to do the work to fix it? Or do they try to blame a mistake on somebody else? And I think, you know, what I learned growing up in a little rural town was, you stood up and said when you were wrong, right? And I have always carried that with me. I hope it's a value most of us share. But um, yeah, that moment in debate prep, though, man, it sticks with me. Because, of course, he's like at the podium. Yeah, right. And he's like, I'm oh. pretty sure this is wrong. And you have that moment of I just want to yes. sink into the floor. And and every like important top person in the campaign is there. Yes, you know, at the same yes. moment. Oh yeah, oh, I can see the scene. Oh, it's so making me sweat a little bit. And you're like trying to <laughs> impress everyone. And yeah. I'm still just a researcher at the time, right? Like I'm a research director. And look, researchers are what everything is built on. Um, and everyone should pay them a lot more money than they're currently being paid. But. Still, as you know, in campaigns, they don't tend to have all the power. So it was uh, right. it was one of those moments. That's right. All right. Final question for you. Time machine. If you could take a time Ooh. machine back and talk to your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give her? I, well, my 20-year-old self was um, maybe drinking a little bit too much, having a little <laughs> bit too much fun. Um and I think my 20-year-old self wasn't nearly optimistic enough about how my life would turn out. Um, my 20-year-old self was really scared about who I was and, the, and where I was living and how hard it was. Um, uh, I think I was definitely still coming out of um, 
where I had grown up and kind of the conservative uh, the pieces that had been fed from a young age. Um, I would tell my 20-year-old self that it is going to be great, right? Because now, here I am, I've built this incredible life. I'm married. I have a daughter who's six and a half. Um, they are what makes everything worth it. Um, but I'm also doing work that feels like it matters and that we've had the ability to bring people together. And um, so I think I would just tell her to hold on. Just keep fighting. Hold on. Yeah. Uh, Tiffany Muller, that is beautiful. And I really can't express my thanks to you enough for spending this hour with us. Um, but also what an admirer I am of yours and how appreciative I am of the work that you're doing and the organizations that you're leading because it really is important to all of us and will eventually lead to many changes that we want and some we can't even see yet that will be for the betterment of everyone. So thank you for what you do. Well, thank you. This was, uh, this was such an honor to be on here with you and um, have always enjoyed any time we get to talk, but loved being on here and thank you for having me. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. <laughs>